1: Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. This is Fundamentally Mormon, and I'm your host, Mark Witkin-Walter. Continuing today, we'll be reading Chapter 15 of United Order, The Philosophy of Consecration. Well, we'll be on pages 213, and we'll be reading to 232. You can read this for free at ogdenkraut.com, and I have posted this on my wallet at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977, as well as the different Facebook groups and pages that I am an admin of. Let's get right into the reading. i let every man deal honestly and be alike among this people, and receive alike that ye may be one, even as I command you. Doctrine and Covenants, section 51, verse 9. The Lord never gave instructions or commandments that were, would result in harm or misery for his children. Every commandment has been designed to eventually bring its own reward and compensation. The Prophet Joseph Smith said, quote, He never will institute an ordinance or give a commandment to his people that is not calculated in its nature to promote the happiness which he has designed and which will not end in the greatest amount of good and glory for those who become the recipients of his laws, his law and ordinances. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 257. The very, or I'm sorry, every revelation from God to man has its purpose, although it may not be understood at the time it is given. The principle of the united order has not been understood or appreciated, nor do people understand the blessings that can be obtained by obedience to that law. Men in general have a tendency to cling tightly to their possessions, and the mere mention of consecration is disturbing to them. They immediately think they will lose their wealth and freedom. Page 214. Nothing could be further from the truth. When the United Order is properly functioning, it will offer more opportunities and greater advantages than any other social program that has ever been attempted. The benefits apply not only to our present mortal life, but also in the life to come. Under our present economic system, poor men look upon the rich with envy and covetousness, while the proud rich look upon the poor with disdain and contempt, neither are innocent. It is all too common that the hard laborer or the honest professional man has little more than the necessities of life, while the swindler, the manipulator of usury, which is somebody who... uh, causes high interest rates to be put upon the people and the cunning grafter are acquiring great wealth. It is the producers, the farmers, the builders, and the laborers who contribute the most to society. But it is the politician, the banker, the lawyer, and others who usually contribute least that obtain the most wealth. It is very evident that A more equitable distribution of the earth's riches should be found and put into practice before society destroys itself. Del Carnegie spent many years and a small fortune gathering information for his book, How to Stop Worrying. He concluded that over 75% of man's worries resulted from his money problems. If some form of equitable financial system could be practiced, then most of man's worries would be absolved. The law of the United Order is the answer to this problem. Brigham Young explained how fast the United Order could create wealth for those who lived it, and also how much could be accomplished in a short time. Uh, we're on page 215 at 9%. Anyway, here's the quote: I know how to start such a society right in the city, and how to make its members rich. I would go to, I would go to now and buy the poorest ward in the city. And then commence with men and women who have not a dollar in the world and bring them here from England or any part of the earth, set them down in this ward and put them to work. And in five years, we would begin to enter other wards and we would buy this house and that house and the next house and we would add ward to ward until we owned the whole city. Every dollar's worth of property there is in it. We could do this and let the rich go to California to get gold, and we would buy their property. Journal of Discourses, Volume 16, page 11. Furthermore, the Lord has said that Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, I cannot receive her unto myself. Doctrine and Covenants, Section 105. Verse 5, it is apparent that we cannot look for a Zion on earth or in heaven until we incline our thinking and action towards this principle. Brigham Young added, quote, Just as long as every man works for himself, we are not the Lord's. We are not Christ's. We are not his disciples in this point of view at any rate. Journal of Discourses, Volume 15, Page 166. Consecration into a united order is the only form of common distribution of wealth that can be that can function to satis- the satisfaction of everyone. It does not stifle a man's intellect or ability to go, or as does socialism or communism. Yet there is a s- certain amount of both equi- equity. An in and inequi- in, I'm sorry, inequality in a united order, everyone receives a portion of food, clothing, and housing, but stewardships are allotted in different amounts. Page two hundred and sixteen, at fourteen percent. This is a key to the success of the system. For instance, it would not be consistent or wise to apportion two men with the same acreage and equipment if one had 20 years of farming experience and the other person had none. So the man capable of handling a larger portion should receive the increased stewardship, while the person who wastes or ruins more than he can properly handle should be apportioned less. A united order should not take from the producers to share with the idler, This would be robbing the producer and rewarding the lazy. Jesus gave a parable designed to illustrate the kingdom of heaven. It was the parable of the talents which most appropriately portrays the united order. See Matthew in the New Testament, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Each of the producers were given an increase in his stewardship, but the non-producer was removed from the system. One of the principal dangers to avoid in a united order is the lazy idler. The Lord made an injunction that thou shalt not be idle, for he that is idle shall not eat the bread or or wear the garments of the laborer. Doctrine and Covenants, section 42, verse 42. And also... The idler shall not have a place in the church, except he repents and mends his ways. See Doctrine and Covenants section 75 verse 29. See also Doctrine and Covenants section 68 verse 30, 60 verse 13, and 88 verses, uh, verse 124. In the study of the united order, it will be realized that the lazy can cause as much or more trouble for the system as any of other single factor. The moment any society begins to use doles to support either the lazy or the hierarchy, the system creates a welfare or priestcraft system. And either or both can be the termination of that society. Page 217 at 20%. The United States established stringent immigration laws to protect itself from unprofitable and undesirable people. The United Order must also protect itself from the idler, the speculator, or the troublemaker. But what about the crippled, the aged, or those who are mentally or physically incapable of doing a regular workload? Each person is capable of contributing something. The government discovered that handicapped people often outproduce many others who are not. Some might be able to sew, to keep books, to teach or perform even a minor task, but each can contribute to something. To collect a vastly different group of people into an order without close supervision would probably have little chance of success. A good united order must have intelligent and wise leadership, industrious people, and cooperative, productive efforts. The whole community must adhere to sound economic principles and work together just as well, just as a well-run business or a well-tuned engine. The true source of wealth is in the labor of men. It is from the land, the timber, and the streams, that capital is transformed, and through the united efforts of talent and brawn, the magic of wealth is produced. Gold or jewelry are merely objects of material, and in and of themselves they produce nothing. But through the cooperative efforts of men, they can produce homes, industry, farms, and every other convenience. The man who can see and enjoy the fruits of his labor will have the desire to improve and increase his allotments. It was upon this principle that private enterprise built America so quickly. Page 218 at 25%. Conversely, robbing the producer and giving to the lazy is now destroying America men must share in the profits of their labor and in the united order that profits are shared with those who produce it and may be laid down as uh, as a safe postulate that no plan of economic organization will permanently succeed, which does not make basic strong economic motives for the individual to be more specific each individual has private interests and the public interests in both he is interested as population grows each individual public individuals public interest tends in the main to grow rather more rapidly than do his private interests both grow as population and wealth increase the united order by means of stewardships places the essential private interests of the individual in his own hands the economic motive is the making of a living for himself and family there is no stronger economic motive known and quote the united order among the mormons by gads page 44 there are many different systems of the united order each one has been geared to accommodate the capacity and wishes of its members. Their descriptions have been categorized into four general types. Number one, in certain communities, every producer was asked to assign his economic property, which is his land, livestock, and tools, to the community cooperative. And the labor of all was directed by, the, by an elected board of management he shared in the common product according to his contribution in labor and property. This type of order had been first established at St. George during the winter of 1873 and 1874 and was duplicated in many Mormon valleys, including Sevier County, or on page 219 at 31%. Number two. In other communities, this collectivization was carried one step further by the maintenance of communal living. Everyone ate in common in a common dining hall, wore clothes from the same bolts of cloth and shared more or less equally in the common product. Reverently referred to as the Gospel plan, this arrangement was followed at Orderville, Utah, Bunkerville, Nevada and at several Mormon settlements in Arizona. Number three. Some of the larger or more complex communities, such as Salt Lake City, participated in the movement of forming a single cooperative enterprise in each ward or division of the city. Thus, one one ward might cooperatively establish a woolen factory, another a machine shop, and still another a cooperative dairy. Number four. Finally, in Brigham City in Hiram, Utah, and at Paris, Idaho, the establishment of independent cooperative enterprises multiplied until virtually all aspects of community economic life were managed by a central board of cooperatives, with almost universal ownership of the cooperative shares and with virtually all settlers employed within the cooperative network, and quote United Order by of Richfield by F. Fox, Utah Historical Quarterly, pay, uh, volume 32, page 355, or at two hundred, uh, page 220 at 35%. The family type order was the principal object of the United Orders. If the saints refused to live together as one large family, they are not showing the fulfillment of the commandment to love one another as themselves. Brigham Young asked several pertinent questions which should cause serious consideration, quote: "Do you think we will ever be one? When we get our home, when we get home to our Father and God, we will not wish will we not wish to be in the family?" Will it not be our highest ambition and desire to be reckoned as the sons of the living God, as the daughters of the Almighty, with a right to the household and the faith that belongs to the household, heirs of the Father, his goods, his wealth, his power, his excellency, excellency, his knowledge and wisdom, Journal of Discourses, volume 11, page 326. And again, we all concede the point that when this mortality falls off and with it, its cares, anxieties, love of self, love of wealth, and love of power, and all of the conflicting interests which pertain to this flesh, that then when our spirits have returned to the God who gave them, we will be subject to every requirement that he, may make, that he may make of us, that we shall then live together as one great family. Our interest will be a general, a common interest. Why can we not so live in this world? Journal of Discourses, volume 12, page 153. And we're on page 221 at 39%. It seems that, the, that man has a tendency to spend his money as soon as he earns it. This self-interest motive is the reason that men find, it dif- find difficulty in joining enjoying a united order. And his love of money is the greatest temptation and reason so many men have failed in their attempt to live this law of the gospel. In a well-organized United Order, the money system could almost entirely be done away. Only a few persons would require to do any, or to do the buying, selling, and marketing of pro- produce from the United Order. Most of the people working in the order may not have any involvement with money as there would be no need for it. When each man in our society is dependent upon getting money, Skimping, manipulating it, gouging, hooking, and being involved with all the petty evils connected thereto, then society becomes a den of thieves and barbarians. Under our present, present system, the slightest failure to acquire wealth may result in the loss of years of labor. For instance, a man might make payments on a home for 20 or 30 years Then, because of employment, illness, or an accident, he might be forced to miss a few payments, eventually leading to his home being taken away from him. This kind of system should not be allowed in a Christian society because it legalized robbery. Also, in our present system, a man is forced to be a bookkeeper or accountant so that he can pay for all the numerous forms of taxes or else be threatened and harassment and possibly sent to jail. Each man becomes a slave to income tax, sales tax, auto tax, federal tax, state tax, etc., etc., etc. In a united order, he is free from such servitude. Consider the many sound reasons for a united order to be established among men. We're on page 222 at 45%. Number one, it provides work for everyone. There are no lines of unemployment or welfare applicants. Number two, every man is able to share in the profits of the community as it grows in wealth, power, and profits. So do all the people who help to create it. Number three, it eliminates unjust taxation and unstable socialized security. And a man's profits are not doled out to the lazy, incompetent idler. Number four, it equalizes the value of labor and time. It prevents men such as doctors, lawyers, or swindlers from taking a small fortune from the unfortunate or unsuspecting. A doctor or a lawyer may take 1% of his work Time to acquire the amount of wealth that a hard-working labor, laborer acquires in 99, 99% of his work time. Number five, it provides the education, training, and means to offer everyone a chance to utilize their talents and abilities. Men don't go to work somewhere just to have an income as it is done now. Number six, It prevents the temptations of robbery and thieving due to poverty or unemployment. Swindlers are not allowed to practice their schemes. It prevents lawsuits so common in our society involving money, inheritance, land, or property. Number seven, God has promised blessings to those who obey this law and cursings to those who do not. Vast sums of temporal riches are promised to those who live this law as well as spiritual gifts and manifestations. Anyone with common sense would not prefer our present economic system to the one in which everyone shares temporal and spiritual blessings equally. And we're at page 223 at 50%. There is no limitation to the number of people that could live this principle. Brigham Young stated that a city of 100,000 or a million of people could be united into a perfect family, and they would work together as beautifully as different parts of the carting machine works together. Why? We could organize millions into a family under the order of Enoch. Journal of Discourses, volume 16, page 170. Both small and big orders are cemented together by mutual trust, kindness, and friendship. The prophet Joseph Smith said, quote, Friendship is one of the grand fundamental principles of Mormonism. It is designed to revolutionize and civilize the world and cause wars and contentions to cease and men to become friends and brothers. It is a time-honored adage that love begets love. Let us pour, pour forth love and show forth our kindness unto all mankind, and the Lord will reward us with everlasting increase. Cast our bread upon the waters, and we shall receive it. Many days, incre- hold on, and we shall receive many days' increase to an hundredfold. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 316. There is another important factor to consider in in the principles of the United Order that is caring for the poor. And we're on page 224 at 54%. The Lord said, And remember in all things the poor and the needy, the sick and afflicted, for he that doth not these things the same as not my disciples or my disciple. Doctrine and Covenants, section 52, verse 40. But there is a method or principle in which relief should be given to the poor. Gettys noted in his book, quote, the frequent extortions in the doctrine... I'm not sure if I'm saying that word right. Let me just define it. Um, exhortations okay sorry i had to look up that word frequent exhortations in the doctrine and covenants to remember the poor are not in the main intended to bring about chari- charity relief but rather but belong rather to the preventative arrangements and quote united order among the mormons by getty's page 68 Brigham Young's philosophy was, My policy is to keep every man, woman, and child busily employed that they might have no idle time for hatching mischief in the night or for making plans to accomplish their own ruin. Journal of Discourses, Volume 2, page 144. And... It is never any benefit to give out and out to man or woman money, food, clothing or anything else if they are if they are able bodied and can work and earn what they need. There is when there is anything on the earth for them to do, this is my principle and I try to act upon it, to pursue a contrary course would ruin any community in the world and make them idlers. Journal of Discourses, volume 11, page 297. He later explained more on this dull system, which does not really help the poor by saying, and we're on page 225 at 58%, says one, It was preached 30 years ago that nothing belongs to us, and if I have a thousand dollars, to at once give it all to the poor. That is your enthusiasm and ignorance. Were you to make an equal distribution of property today, one year would not pass before there would be a great, as great an inequality as now. How could you ever get a people equal with regards to their possessions? They never can be, no more than... They can be in the appearance of their faces. It is not for me to take the Lord's property placed under my charge and wantonly distribute it. I must do it as he tells me. In my stewardship, I am not to be a guide by the mere whims of human folly, by those who are more ignorant than I am, not by the lesser power but by the superior, superior and wiser. We are to be guided by superior knowledge, by a higher influence and power. The superior is not to be directed by the inferior. Consequently, you need not ask me to throw that which the Lord has put into my hands to the four winds. If by industry industrious habits and honorable dealings, you obtain thousands or millions, little or much, it is your duty to use all that is put in your possession as judiciously as you have knowledge to build up the kingdom of God on the earth. Let the poor equalize their means, and it would be one of the greatest injuries that could ever be done to them. Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, page 29 and 30. Brigham claimed to know how much to know how to help men become rich and we're on page 226 at 63%. Quote, I can take 50 men who have not a cent and if they would do as I would wish them to do they would soon be worth their thousands every one of them. Journal of Discourses, volume 16, page 170. In the book and movie called The Ugly American, it was demonstrated that a poor but wise man could do more towards helping people in foreign lands than the government can do with all their millions of dollars in foreign aid. There is an old proverb that says, "...give a man a fish and he will return tomorrow." Teach a man how to fish, and he will thank you forever. Every soul born on this planet has an equal right to land, air, water, and sunshine. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and we are only tenants here by equal permission of the Creator. He has given us all certain inalienable or unalienable rights with no exclusive rights to anyone. However, the natural man is always trying to sell everything for the most he possibly can. Every business deal becomes an attempt to squeeze out every cent of profit possible. This is a temptation that leads men into sin, self-aggrandizement, and the love of riches. It was George Q. Cannon who said that many Latter-day Saints have refrained from the taking are from taking hold of the merchandising and other branches because there was the temptation to to make immense profits out of the necessities of their brethren and sisters. Journal of Discourses, Volume 16, page 119. He will conclude by acknowledgement that under the united order of Enoch, men would not be thus tempted... Page 227 at 68%. It is for these reasons that men must adopt or philosophy, a philosophy or establish in their minds certain rules or principles which will help them to avoid the pitfalls of our present society. Brigham Young voiced this wise guideline when he said, quote, The Lord has given to me all I possess. I have nothing in reality, not a single dime of it is mine. You may ask, do you feel as you say? Yes, I actually do. The coat I have on my back is not mine, and never was. The Lord put it into my possession honorably, and I wear it. But if he wishes for it, and all there is under it, he is welcome to the whole. I do not own a house or a single foot of land, a horse, a mule, a carriage or a wagon, nor a wife or child, but what the Lord gave me. And and if he wants them, he can take them at his pleasure, whether he speaks for them or takes them without speaking. This should be the feeling to animate every bosom. It should. What have you to consecrate that is actually your own? Nothing. Journal of Discourses, Volume Two, Page Three Hundred Seven. Martin Luther put wealth and, pros, pr, and pro, in the proper perspective when he said, "Quote: Wealth is the smallest thing on the earth, the least gift that God has bestowed upon mankind. What is in its." Con- comparison with God's word? What in in comparison with corporal gifts as beauty, health, etc.? Nay, what is it to the gifts of the mind as understanding, wisdom, etc.? Yet are men so eager after it that no labor, pains, or risk is regarded to the acquisition of riches wealth has in its in it, neither material, formal efficiency nor anything else that is good thereof, and we're on page uh, two hundred and twenty eight percent at two hundred and twenty eight at seventy three percent. Our Lord God commonly gives riches to those from whom He withholds spiritual goods, and quote by ta- uh, and this is from Martin Luther's book, Table Talk. Table Talk, page 67. And something interesting about that book, the the Catholic Church hated that book so much that they burned every single copy that they could find. And by, by miraculous means, there was a copy that was hidden up, I think, by a monk. <laughs> and um, And we have it today, but they tried to completely wipe that book off the face of the planet back in the 1500s when Martin Luther was alive, and uh, it's a pretty good book. People should take a look at it. Uh, Go and read it. Um, I'm pretty sure you can get it on Amazon or look it up. You might even be able to read it for free online somewhere, but it's a dang good book. All right, continuing on. The Apostle Paul expressed the same sentiments when he said, Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyselves. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, Faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good faith, and lay hold on, et- in, on eternal life. 1 Timothy in the New Testament, chapter 6, verses 5 through 12. Some people feel they never have any surplus to consecrate. Brigham Young said to this, If we have our hundreds and thousands, we may foster the idea that we have nothing more than we need. But such a no- notion is entirely erroneous for our real wants are very limited what do we absolutely need i possess everything on the face of this earth that i need as i appear before you on this stand millennial star volume 32 page 818 and we're at 29 percent is i'm sorry what 200 page 229 verse 70 percent Oh my gosh, I need to take a break. Hold on here. With this clearer understanding of wealth and surplus, let us consider again the principles and ideology behind the laws of consecration. Number one, when a person consecrates his property, he receives a stewardship sufficient for himself and his family. This becomes his, his inheritance in Zion. Doctrine and Covenants, section 42, verse 32. Number two. Those who receive alike are accounted accounted as one, which is the oneness that Christ spoke in the New Testament and which Mormons should understand and practice. Doctrine and Covenants, section 38, verse 27, and also section 51, verse 9. Number three. The saints... For the elect, are commanded to gather together into one place upon this land so that they can be prepared in all things for the day when vengeance cometh upon the world. Doctrine and Covenants, section 29, verse 6. And see, that's the commandments that God has given. Uh, he never has abrogated or done away with any of these things. His word and his instructions are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the fact that um, Joseph F. Smith said that, this, uh, that Zion is everywhere, wherever the saints are at, and they should just stay in their own countries, that actually goes against what the, what the Lord has said as instructions given to us in the Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph Smith taught that if they, if they contradict the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants, set them down as imposters and they do when when they tell you that these things aren't important anymore they're actually contradicting the book or the instructions given to us in the scriptures and Joseph Smith said you have to set them down as imposters but many continue to say that they are you know true leaders sent by God and they're not they're telling you to do things which God has not commanded And they're telling you not to worry about what God has instructed because that was for another time or another people, and that's not how God operates. God has given us instructions so that we as a people in this last dispensation can redeem Zion. And then the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 9, it says that when a people keep all that I have commanded and build Zion below, they shall look up and Zion will come down from above with the church of the firstborn. And in order for Adam and Andiama to happen, you actually have to have that happen. But that can't happen until there's a people who will be obedient to God's instructions and commandments and actually do what he says, not just say, oh, that's for a different time or a different people, and we don't have to worry about that now. Anyway, continuing on, number four. The saints who do not and have not kept the law of consecration fail to redeem Zion and, and will not until after the law is kept. Doctrine and Covenants, section 105, verse 5. Number 5. All saints who do not or will not consecrate are not to have an, inhe- have an inheritance. They should not have their names enrolled with the people of God. The genealogy is not to be kept, neither are they to be written in the book of the law of God. Doctrine and Covenants, Section eighty five, verses three through five. Number six. To all those who are saints all those who are saints are obligated to live this law of consecration according to Doctrine and Covenants, section seventy, verse ten, or on page two hundred and thirty at 82%. Number seven, all saints who fail to abide the law of being equal in all things will have the manifestation of the Spirit withheld from them. Doctrine and Covenants, section 70, verse 14. Number eight, the consecration of property in the church is to be reorganized as an everlasting order for men's salvation and to be continued until the Savior comes, according to Doctrine and Covenants section 104, verse 1. And like I said before, there's supposedly 16 million members of the church, and they have billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in assets and wealth and stocks and bonds contributing to the building up of Babylon the Great, but not one united order. And there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. God has commanded us to do certain things and when we don't do them and we make excuses, we're no better than the Christians who apostatize from the gospel during the apostasy because we ourselves become apostate when we don't keep what God has commanded us to do. And there's a principle in section 124 where Jesus says, when he's talking about building the temple for the Father to come to ref- uh, restore the fullness of the priesthood. You can see that in section 124, verse starting in verse uh, 27 and going to I don't know around verse 50 or something. But but there's a principle when Jesus says, "I will re- uh, if you don't do what I say, I will reject reject the church with their dead." Well, if you don't do as He has commanded us and and given us in the instructions of the scriptures then we're not his people, we're disobedient. Um, Yesterday I was listening to uh, a podcast where they were talking about the whore of all the earth and I was, as they were trying to figure out what the whore of all the earth was, well, in order to become a whore, you have to first become a wife. The church is the bride of Christ. We're supposed to be obedient to our husband who is Jesus Christ, who has given us instructions on how he wants us to live. But when we go whoring ourselves off after Babylon the Great, we become the whore of the whole earth. And I don't care what church you're in, whether you think it's true or not, when we become, when we are the bride of Christ and we become obedient to a different husband, for instance, Babylon the Great, we're whoring ourselves off as the bride of Christ But we're whoring ourselves off and cheating on our husband with Babylon the Great, which is trying to be our husband as well. We cannot serve two masters. Either we're Christ and his bride, or we're cheating on him and we're the whore of the whole earth. Anyway, verse... Well, starting... Let's see. Oh, point 10. Men must recognize that they are the children of God and that he alone owns the earth and all things therein and that he has established laws which would provide all the necessities needed by the saints. He said that his law is that the poor should be exalted and the rich made low, so that all can share equally. Doctrine and Covenants, section 104, verses 14 through 16. This commandment is from the Lord and rests upon every man. Doctrine and Covenants, Section one hundred four, verses eleven through thirteen. The Lord gives man a few temple possessions to see what he will do with them. He allows us all to possess a very, uh, to possess a few talents to see if we will bury them or improve upon them in a righteous cause. Brigham Young taught, "quote I want to say to all, to you, I want to say to you." who have a little money, a farm, or other property. Seek first to know where God wants you to put that property. That is the word of the Lord to you. Hearken and hear it, men and women. Seek to know where God wants you to put it. And if it is into a factory where you will not get a farther farthering for ten years, put it there. We're on page 231 at 87%. And in the end, the Lord will bring out more means to you than if you let it out at 24, um, 24%. You'll make it, make. you'll make by it. Okay, sorry. How do you know, Brother Brigham? I know by my own experience. My character and my life have shown that this that from this time I had fifty cents after I came into into the church, my first desire was to know what to do with it, in the days of Joseph where we lived and worked, it was harder than to get harder than to get fifty cents than it is for a poor man to get hundred dollars now. But if Joseph came along and said. Brigham, have you got 50 cents? Yes, I have. Joseph Smith would say I want it. You can have it always and forever. If it was a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars, he had it and had it freely and never asked for it again. And if ever I could work at home and get 50 cents in money to buy a little molasses for my family to soft their Johnny cake in. If Joseph wanted it, he always had it, and I got rich by it. And I I can say so of all who take the same course. While the covetous, those who are striving continually to build themselves up in the things of this life, will be poor indeed. They will they will be poor in spirit, and poor in heavenly. Spirit heavenly things, Journal of Discourses, volume 17, page 158. Although the Church excuses itself from establishing the United Order, there are no valid reasons for it. If they think the Lord has excused us from living the laws of consecration and the United Order, then he has also excused us from inheriting the celestial kingdom. Those who live live laws of a lesser kingdom will also inherit a lesser kingdom. See Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verses 18 through 21. So, Joseph Smith, or not Joseph Smith, Ogden Kraut was asked, you know, if there was anything that he could change, knowing all that he knows, what would he change about the church And he thought about it for a little bit, and then he said, I wouldn't change anything. And then he explained that it's basically a test. God has given us instructions on how to live, and we have a choice. We're either going to live as he has commanded and follow him, or we're going to obey the instructions of men who say that these things are not important anymore and follow them. You can either follow man or God, but you can't follow both. A true messenger or prophet of God teaches people to or teaches people correct principles and then expects them to govern themselves, to have free agency to gover, govern themselves and to be obedient to his commandments. And any prophet, president, or ruler that commands us or instructs us to do contrary to the will of God is not God's servant, no matter what claim or title he has. Anyway, we're on page 232 at 90% of the reading for today. Uh, if there's anybody who wants to call in, I know it's early in the morning, but uh, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917 889 8827. The studio is open and if you do call in and you want to come on the air push 1 and I will bring you into the call screening room and ask you what your question is and ask you if you would like to come on the air live or if you would like me to just answer the question live on the air. Um, So the the phone lines are open now. Also the chat room is available at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally mormon for you to ask your questions and comments and i will get to them if anybody chooses to ask questions through that format or chooses to call in i'll get to the the questions and comments after the reading uh if nobody calls in like before like i always do i'll just go on to the next thing without worrying about it so once again, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. If men could acquire salvation, they have got to be subject, before they leave this world, to certain rules and principles which were fixed by an unalterable decree before the world was. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 6, page 51. The Lord also said If any man shall take the abundance which I have made and impart not his portion according to the law of my gospel unto the poor and the needy, he shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. Doctrine and Covenants, section 104, verse 18. These are the reasons that men should bend their thinking towards the united order, rather than towards the ideals and philosophies of men. If we disregard the laws of the gospel and obtain the whole world but lose our souls, it has profited us nothing. The Latter-day Saints have an obligation to cast out all the Gentile schemes and philosophies for getting rich and obey the Lord's law and principle principles which will make us rich in this life and in the next. So that's the end of the reading for chapter 15. When we come back on uh, and continue on with the reading, we'll be in chapter 16, The Latter-day Sinners. And I'll just give a pretty quick preview of reading one page of the next chapter just to give you a taste for what we're going to be covering next time we come on. Latter-day Sinners The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. Isaiah chapter 24. Verses 5 and 6. Note, Joseph Fielding Smith declared that it is the Latter-day Saints who have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant. And you can find that in Deseret News, Church Section, October 17, 1936. Two Two principal sins are related to wealth. The love of money which is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, and the inequality of riches found in Doctrine and Covenants, section 49, verse 20. For the past 150 years, the saints have been guilty of both evils. And that's actually, you know, it was 150 years when he wrote this book, but now it's like 190 years, I think, 190-something years since the church was organized. So, the question now arises, what happened to cause this failure? Or Orson pra- contended that the saints were guilty of these sins over a century ago when he said, anything short of a perfect equality in temporal things is a sin. Hence, the Lord says, it is not given that one man should possess that which is above another, Wherefore the whole world lieth in sin. It is this law now, it is, or is this law now enforced upon the saints? Do they have all things in common? Do they all possess the same? No, they have not become righteous enough to obey this law. Covetousness has taken such deep root in their hearts through the wicked traditions of their Gentile fathers that this law remains unheeded. End quote. The Seer by Orson Pratt, page 291. So that's the end of the reading for today. Thank you for listening, and um, as I have stated many times... I'm actually pre-recording this the day before. It's actually September 29th, about three, three forty four p.m. But uh, we'll begin the program with this recording at six o'clock in the morning, and I'll try to do that every weekday, where I prepare a reading the night before, and then and then uh, in the morning at six I'll start it uh, with the program at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentallymormon. And I'm doing that because my wife doesn't have enough time to take care of all the things that she needs and do this program, and I'm at work 8 o'clock at night, which is when I was doing it before, and I can't do it. So this is the only time of day when I can actually read and not be so tired that I'm falling asleep because um, I I usually work from 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. And then I drive home and wake the kids up. Uh, I'll turn their lo- the light on in the hallway and then open their doors. And then 10 minutes later, I'll walk in and I will turn their lights on and, tr- and tell them it's time to get up. You know, and usually that's around 5.30 in the morning when I'm doing that. And then I'll take a shower and uh, get cleaned up from hauling coal all night, which makes me dirty every single night. And, um, and then I will start the program and help my family get ready while I'm listening to it on our uh, Bluetooth speaker in our living room. And we all run around and try to get ready for for the day and I try to get help them get ready and then I go to sleep around 8 in the morning and um, but even if I didn't have to do all of that when I get home in the morning I'm so tired I, I'm just so tired because the schedule that I keep is so hard but when I go to bed at 8 I usually wake up around 2 2.30 and then I take care of things and then I sit down and I'm able to read and do the recording so that's why I started doing it this way so I think it's working pretty good and I think I can produce more content um, by doing it this way but anyway um, let's see if I can prepare uh, another recording uh, to go along with what we read today and it probably won't have anything to do with United Order But lately, I've been listening to a lot of this podcast called Truth Fed, and I really enjoy listening to it, and I think that other people will enjoy listening to it as well. So anyway, thank you for listening for what it's worth, and uh, we'll get into either the end of the program or the next recording. So here we go. Okay, so that's the end of the reading for today, Um, where the next part uh, I was able to finish. So we'll get into the Torah portion for week one, which is Bereshit, which means in the beginning, and it's Genesis chapters one through six, uh, six, verse eight. So it's about 50 minutes long, so that'll take us to the end of the program today. And we'll start that as soon as I can get my studio to work here. Let's see if I can get it to work. Here we go.
2: is scriptureandprophecy.com that's where you go to find the archives that's where you go to support this mission of truth well it is that time of the year again and the torah portion weekly schedule has started over and so this is week one now real quick before i get into this week's reading this week's parsha which happens to be genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 6 verse 8. We need to do a little bit of an introduction uh, for those who may be new uh, to all of this. By the way, I've taken the time and I've wrote, written two articles that are now up at scriptureandprophecy.com. And they're, I've made them sticky so they're right there at the top. One is titled, What is the Weekly Torah Portion? The other one is titled, What is the Weekly Prophets Portion? Trying to get stuff up on the website as resources and tools for people uh, that I can also reference myself every year when they come around instead of having to kind of re come up with these things. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from it, uh, but if you're new to this concept, I recommend that you go read the whole article. Okay, but let's just answer the question: What is the weekly tour portion exactly? Like, what is it, and why do we do it? So every Sabbath, it is the Jewish custom to read aloud from the Torah. These readings are broken up into 54 weekly portions, usually comprising two to six chapters. These 54 readings follow a schedule that will allow for the entire Torah, which is the five books of Moses, to be read over the Hebrew calendar year. Each weekly Torah portion has a name. That is derived from the very first wor- words of, or very first verse of that week's reading. For example, the first portion, which is the one we're getting ready to read, is Genesis chapter one through Genesis chapter six, verse eight, and it is titled "Bare Sheet," which means "in the beginning." Often, these readings are also accompanied by a weekly prophets portion, uh, which in Hebrew is called HaTorah there's an article there you can read about that as well uh it's likely that this portion reading schedule thing was instituted after the babylonian captivity by the scribe ezra so you can go to nehemiah chapter eight we refer to it a lot this time of year uh, that particular chapter and you can go check that out last thing why should christians care about the weekly torah portion right this is not a christian custom so why do we care Well, here's why. Unfortunately, many Christians today are willfully ignorant of the scriptures. They know some New Testament, but they know it on a very elementary level. This is true for even many seasoned Christians today. Without a vast and deep understanding of the Old Testament, and more specifically the Torah, one can't even scratch the surface of understanding the New Testament. I believe Chuck Missler said it best. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You can't have one without the other unless you are content with being complete, with with complete and utter ignorance about basic doctrine, and especially Bible prophecy. As an example, so many today are very confused when trying to interpret the book of Revelation. This is not because the book of Revelation is overly complicated. It's because they have little to no knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, wherein all the symbolism used in the book of Revelation has been clearly interpreted already. Same goes for many of the parables and the words of Jesus. So do yourself and your walk a favor. Take the time this year to work through the weekly Torah portion schedule. And I promise your relationship with God his word and his son Jesus will vastly change as a result. So that article can be found at scriptureandprophecy.com. Like I said, it's at the very top. And uh, we're going to start making things easier in regards to this stuff uh, to find the resources. And, I may, and when I say that, I also mean easier for myself to find it. All right, now that we got the introduction out of the way, uh we've got six chapters of the book of genesis to read today and just so you know the custom is that it would just be read aloud it would be some teaching maybe but it wasn't just like full-on commentary so that's pretty much what i'm going to do here i'm going to interrupt it a couple of times to point out some interesting things and of course you know i can't read genesis chapter six without going on a rant so if you're looking forward to my rant about giants and nephilim uh you won't be disappointed i I uh, can't control myself when it comes to that so we'll be getting to that at the end of the podcast let's go to torportions.org real quick and let's read the portion summary and by the way I'm going to create those summaries as well on my own website Uh, you know this is gonna be a process this year to get all this done here is the portion summary from torportions.org the scroll of the Torah is the oldest and most sacred of all Israel scriptures. It contains five books. The Hebrew name for the first one is Bereshit. It is also the first word of the book in the Hebrew text as well as the name of the first Parsha, the first week's reading. Bereshit means in the beginning. The English Genesis comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Genesis means origins. Therefore, the Greek name of the first book of the Bible means the book of origins. Genesis describes the origins of everything. It begins with the origins of the universe, focuses on the origins of man, and then explores the origins of the nation of Israel. As we study the first week's reading from the book of Genesis, we will learn a great deal about God, but even more about ourselves. After all, this is a story of our origins, and when properly understood, the story of our origins helps us find our destination. So with all the introduction out of the way, let's jump in and read our porsche, Parsha portion for today. I'm going to read from the King James Bible this morning. Let's begin. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, "Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters." And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so and God called the firmament heaven and the evening and the morning were the second day please note just a quick comment I was in a class recently seminary class and One of the students, we were in like a little small group thing. And one of the students was saying that she had no one's ever been able to explain to her what, what that meant as far as the firmament. And there was supposed to be water and why we can't see the water. And I gave her an explanation. that was that really satisfied, uh, her, her mind. And she had never heard that explanation before and was very simple. And I said, that's because before the flood, there was water above. And when the flood happened, that water came down, along with water coming up from the earth. And now that water is no longer in the firmament, and things have changed. And so that's what I believe about that, in case you were curious. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he sees. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, a greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly, a moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every ringed fowl after his kind and God saw that it was good and God blessed them, saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the water and the seas and let the fowl multiply in the earth and the evening and the morning were the fifth day and God said let the earth bring forth the living creatures after his kind cattle and creeping things the beast of the earth after its kind and it was so And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God created he, him. Male, female created them. Please note, there's that phrase there, let us make man in our image, plural. Now, if you go look at Jewish commentaries, they say, well, God invited the Jewish hosts, or not the Jewish hosts, the angelic host, you know, to to kind of partake and participate in that creation. I would argue that it's actually just demonstrating the three persons of God, so to speak, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think that's what that means. And then if you look at verse 27, it changes from plural to singular. And it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, and created them. So that's what I believe is going on there. Obviously, people can. Disagree and do disagree, and that's fine. Verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And he gave dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree and the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you shall it be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it, he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. I think it's interesting that the Sabbath of rest, which was a type At this point, is still just a type and shadow God lives that example out. It's not like God can get tired. He's God. So this is a demonstration of many things. It's a foreshadow of the the Sabbath day. It's also I think a foreshadow of prophecy. There's so much there uh, that we just don't have time to try to unpack this morning, but it's worth taking note of. Verse four. These are the generations of heavens, of the heavens and of the earth, and they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew for the lord god had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground but there went up from the mist of the earth and watered the whole face of the ground and the lord god formed man of the dust and of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul Please note, I apologize for continuing to interrupt the reading. It's interesting to note that as soon as chapter 2 happens, we move away from God, and in, and in Hebrew it says Elohim to Yehovah Elohim. Is what we're seeing over and over now. And of course, many have argued that, well, there must have been multiple authors or, or whatever. I don't necessarily think that's true, uh, but it is interesting to note that now, instead of just Elohim, like we read in the first chapter, God is now being referred to as, uh, as a, with a name, and we don't see it in our English Bibles, uh, but in the Hebrew it says Yehovah Elohim, or sometimes Yehovah Elohai, which we translate as Lord God. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the river went out to Eden, of Eden to the water and to water the garden, from thence it was parted, and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasses the whole land of Havilah of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, and there is Bedellum and the Onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the same as that that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hiddekel, that is, it, it groweth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden thou mayest eat freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, and every fowl of the air, and he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and all the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman, and he brought her unto him, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and there shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Chapter 3 now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Please note, real quick, and the serpent was more subtle. The word that was translated serpent is the Hebrew word nachash, which means a serpent. What's interesting is if you, you know, we have our, the Hebrew text, which we take and we translate into English. There's also a Samaritan text. And the Samaritan copy, instead of machash, which translates as serpent, they have kahash, which is a liar or a deceiver. And what's interesting is they're both right, you know, because if, if you go to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation refers to Satan as that old serpent, right? The serpent of old. And he is a serpent in a way. Uh, the word machash can mean all kinds of wild things but it's it's typically translated serpent but kahash a liar or deceiver is also true in fact if we go to john chapter 8 the gospel of john we hear jesus and he says this ye are of your father the devil he's talking to the pharisees and the lust of your father ye will do he was a murderer from the beginning talking about satan and abode not in truth because there is no truth in him when he speaketh a lie he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it and of course the first lie that we see recorded ever being spoken was from the the, nahash or the kahash the serpent or the liar or the deceiver and what does he do he immediately questions is God telling you the truth, or is God holding out on you? Is God holding out on you? So let's go back to that, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And a woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam, and he said unto them, Where art thou? He said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou were naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee not, thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave us to be with me, she gave me the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I... I did eat. the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So the woman's curse is that she will have pain now when it comes to giving birth, and that she will basically desire to be over her husband, but that won't be the design. Whereas before this, there was no need for the man above the woman or or whatever they were just one flesh in perfect unity that's the original design but because of the curse now the man will be the head of the the, like the house whole type of situation he will be in charge the woman will desire to be in charge but will not be able to be in charge and she's going to have pain and sorrow when she brings forth children i have to i don't want to bring i don't want to like cause any deep like theological messes here um but i will just say that i find it interesting that after the sin the first thing they do is they cover their genitals and then the woman's punishment is that she would have pain giving birth i'm not going to go any further than that and to say that's just bizarre and i can't help but wonder verse 17 now, with us get to Adam's curse. And he said unto Adam, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return into the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So the man's curse is: now you're going to have to work to provide. Before the earth just gave you everything, you didn't have to do anything other than care for the garden. But it wasn't a, it wasn't it wasn't like a work type thing or sweat type thing. But now you're going to have to work hard. You're going to sweat and there's going to be thorns and there's going to be thistles and it's going to be difficult to provide food. And to provide for yourself and your family is basically Adam's curse. Verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, man has become one of us to know good and evil and now let us put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken so Adam is Adam and his wife Eve are now removed from paradise and again God refers to himself in the plural in this situation he says and the Lord God said Yehovah Elohim said behold the man has become one of us to know good and evil verse 24 so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims these are types of angels and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life chapter 4 and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she bare his brother Abel. And Abel was the keeper of sheep, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the tree of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering but unto Cain and his offering he had no respect Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell and the Lord said unto Cain why art thou wroth and why is thy countenance fallen if thou doest well shalt thou not be accepted and if thou doest not well sin lieth at the door and unto thee there shall be his desire and thou shalt rule over him so God's warning Cain hey What's taking place in your heart right now, it's about to bring forth sin. Sin is at the door, you need to rule over that. If you just do what you're supposed to do, if you just do what's right, I'll accept it. Well, we know the story. Verse eight, and Cain talked with Abel his brother and it came to pass that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? He said, I know not, I am, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now thou art cursed from the earth which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. So it's, we had the first murder, but what I'm, find interesting. And again, I'm just going to raise questions to cause you to think. I'm not going to act like I have all the answers. First of all, God puts a mark on Cain so that no one kills him. That's interesting within itself. But what's even more interesting is who are all the people on the earth that Cain's afraid of? I mean, at this point, all the Bible's told us about is Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. But Cain is worried that he's going to go into the earth and there's going to, there's a population that he's, that's going to try to kill him so God puts a mark on him. Interesting. Verse 16. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he, he built a city and he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And he said unto Enoch, was born in Irad, and Irad begot Mahajael and Mahajel begot Methusel, and Methusalel begot Lamak. And Lamach took unto him two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada Bar Jabel, he was the father of such as dwelt in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his mother's name was Jubal, and he was father of all such as handle the harp and the organ. And Zillah she also bared Tubal-Cain, instructor of every art of fisher in the brass and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Na'amah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said, She hath appointed me another. For God, she said, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began man to call upon the name of the Lord. I'm sorry, but we have to stop one more time with this verse 26. So, Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 26. Let me read that again real quick. I'm pulling up the Hebrew. And and to Seth, to him also there was born a son. He called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Now I have to disagree. This is, and I could be wrong, but I'm going to tell you why I disagree. I disagree with that sentence, and then men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. What I actually think it should say is then men begin to profane the name of the Lord, not call upon. Now the word there is for begin to call is the hebrew word halal which means to profane to defile pollute desecrate like that's the first definition for it the second definition is to profane oneself to defile oneself to pollute oneself the next one is ritually or sexually to be polluted to be defiled to profane make common defile pollute to violate it can mean uh, what it does say to begin, but that's like at the bottom of the list of how that word is typically translated. It's mostly translated as to profane. It's not just... That the word is usually translated profane. That I believe that, but also the context of the scriptures. We're getting ready to go into chapter five and chapter six, which deals with the fall of man becoming more and more wicked, the sons of God coming down and intermingling with the women. Like all that's the context. Like like man becoming decadent. So I don't believe they started to call upon the name of the Lord at that time. I believe they started to profane the name of the Lord at that time. You can do with that that what you will. That's just my view. It's taken us a while to get through this. Let's get to chapter 5, which is very short. And then we'll have 8 verses in chapter 6 and some ranting. Chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam. And in the day that they were created... And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years and begot a son of his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were eight hundred years and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years and he died. And Seth lived a hundred and five years and begot Enos and Seth lived after he begot Enos eight hundred and seven years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were nine hundred and twenty years, and he died. And Enos lived ninety years, and he begot Canaan. And Enos lived after he begot Canaan eight hundred years, eight hundred and fifteen years, and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were nine hundred and five years, and he died. And Canaan lived seventy years, and begot Mahalalel. And Canaan lived after he begot Mahalalel eight hundred. And forty years, and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were nine hundred years, nine hundred and ten years, and he died. And Mahalalel lived sixty and five years, and he begot Jared. And Mahalalel lived after he begot Jared, eight hundred and thirty years, and he begot sons and daughters. All the days of Mahalalel were eight hundred and ninety and five years, and he died. And Jared lived. A 160 in two years, and he begot Enoch. And Jared lived after he begot Enoch 800 years, and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 900 years, 960 in two years, and he died. And Enoch lived 60 years and five years, and he begot Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God. After he begot Methuselah 300 years, and he begot sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. So right there we have the first example of a man being raptured, right, so to speak. Enoch walked with God and uh, was taken. And I don't have time to go into the great detail about that. And Methuselah lived 180 and 7 years and begot Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begot Lamech 700 years, 782 years, and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And Lamech lived 108 and 2 years, and begot a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived, after he begot Noah, 590 and 5 years, and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 770 and 7 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So that's kind of the genealogy there you hear about Enoch, Methuselah, Jared, you've got Lamech, and then you've got Noah. Now we have eight verses left in our portion today. And so those of you who have been looking forward to my rant, uh, here you go. And for those of you who are not looking forward to my rant, uh, sorry. Chapter 6. We got eight verses to read. And it came to pass, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and he took them wise of all they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and of creeping thing and of fowls of the air. And it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That last line is, is actually a really beautiful line, and it's a beautiful way to end the portion. And I love that it's the way the portion ends for the schedule. is like all this bad stuff has happened. God's fed up. Man's got 120 years, and then it's all coming down. But Noah, that's a beautiful, beautiful line. But, in spite of all that, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. All right, let me quickly deal with this. Just so you know, if you go to the YouTube channel and you search the word Enoch, you'll find endless, endless videos and commentary that I've done on this subject. I'm going to give a three-minute rundown in our partial study for today because it's already been 40 minutes. we running out of time. And it came to pass, and men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were fair. He took them wives first word we're going to deal with here is sons of God now just about any Bible commentary you buy just about any seminary school that trains pastors teaches that the sons of God are actually the sons of Seth which I think is absolutely absurd. It's absurd because it doesn't fit with what the rest of the Bible has to say about this subject. That's number one. And number two, if the Bible wanted you to know it was the sons of Seth, it would simply say the sons of Seth. What it says in Hebrew is B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. Now there is another place where this phrase is used, B'nai Elohim. You need to look no further than the book of Job. Here's what it says, verse 6, chapter 1. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, the Bnei Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Almost no one disagrees that this is talking about angels coming before God and Satan, who is also an angelic being, being with them. Okay? So, there was a day when the Bnei Elohim came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. That's the other place where this is used. More importantly, as we read on, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. The word there that we translate as giants is actually the word Nephilim. Now, the secular here's what's sad, is the secular world, if you say to if you ask them what is a Nephilim or Nephilim, uh, they will very quickly tell you, hey, it's a human-giant hybrid because that, they get that from their from, – from lore, from movies and from video games and from fantasy novels and those kinds of things because that's what it's meant to the world forever and ever and ever. There is another place where this is used. So there were giants in the earth – the Bible – listen to what the Bible is telling you. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, how did that happen? When the sons of God, the Bnei Elohim, which we just very clearly said was angels, and I'm gonna prove it some more here in a minute, came to the daughters of men and bare children to them, and they became mighty men of old, men of renown. The other place where the word Nephilim is used is actually in the book of Numbers. This is where the spies go out to spy out the promised land And they saw there were giants, the sons of Anak, which came to giants, and it says, which come of the giants, and we were in our sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. So they come back and they say, we can't go into the promised land, there's giants there, the son of Anak. These people are so big that we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And then, of course, you have David fighting Goliath, right, nine-foot, athletic, agile warrior, Okay, not big, tall, clumsy dude. Uh, The second Samuel tells us about Goliath's brothers, and it goes in detail about how big their spears were and how big their bed had to be because these, these guys were giants. And they had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. The Bible going out of its way to tell you these aren't normal people. Okay? Here's the other thing outside of the Bible, you can simply go Google from the 1800s and 1900s before the censorship really took off about it. You can Google where they're digging up 15-foot skeletons all over the United States of America. It's being reported by major newspapers all over the country. Go research it yourself. Okay? Here's the other thing. People want to argue, oh, this wasn't fallen angels. This, by the way, Nephilim, the fall, this root word there means to fall. <laughs> but people say, oh, it's not fallen angels. You know, it's the sons of Seth, even though that's not at all what it says. What does Jude say? So let's go to Jude in the New Testament. He says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this. How that the Lord saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but they left their habitation, he reserved unto everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Now what's interesting is the book of Enoch, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, talks about how these angels. They call them watchers in the book of Enoch Came down, intermingled with women And produced giants, produced Nephilim And their punishment was that they were put in darkness Chained up until the day of judgment Which is exactly what Jude says So where's Jude getting this information? I would argue from the book of Enoch, because he goes on to quote the book of Enoch a few verses later. You go to verse 14, and Jude says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them after their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So Jude tells the story from the book of Enoch about what happened in Genesis chapter 6 and then he quotes from the book of Enoch directly by the way the book of Enoch not only has it been found in abundance with the Dead Sea Scrolls but it was in the Ethiopic Jewish Bible and the Ethiopic Christian Bible long before there was even such thing as an English Bible and it still is to this day and the book that they have believe it or not when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 40s was Perfect. It was exactly what they had in their Bible to begin with. Peter says in the last days we'll be ignorant about the things concerning the flood. Ignorant about a lot of things. If you go to Second Peter, Peter says, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? By the way, I still run into this with Christians today. Everything going on in the world, they'll tell me this very line that Peter says they're going to say. And saying, Where is the promise of this coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Every time I meet with friends or family and we talk about end times, I always get, well, every generation thought it was the end times. Peter says that's exactly how people are going to act, by the way. Anyway, let me get to my point. Verse 5, for this they are willfully are ignorant. I don't remember, if you remember Kent Hovind, but he used to say when the Bible says "willfully ignorant," it means dumb on purpose. For this, they are willfully ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was then being overflowed with the water perished. So there's there's coming a day when they're going to say the Lord's not coming. Everybody's believed this. They're going to be ignorant of what took place. With the flood, and then as a result of their ignorance, their willful ignorance, verse seven, but the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. So Peter's saying it's coming just like the day it did just like the days of Noah. People will be ignorant about it, they'll be denying that it's happening, and then judgment's coming. But then I remember the last verse of our portion today. That in spite of all that, verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, that is our study for this morning. It's the best I could do for you in 47 minutes. And I had to get up incredibly early to pull this off this morning. So I hope that you were blessed by it. There's so much more to say, so much more to unpack, uh, that we just don't have the time to do. So take the time and study it some more. Seek out these things for yourself, and uh, I pray that uh, this is at least causing you to hunger for more of God's Word and for more of God's truth that seems to be lost on a majority of the world today. Thanks for listening. Please consider supporting this. There's a lot of work that goes into this, and it gets kind of expensive as well, so please consider supporting it scriptureandprophecy.com is how you go about doing that. Peace and grace be with all of you. Until next time, God bless.